Hi, this is Ben Lola, Back to the Bible Canada. As we continue our current series, The Greatest Sermon Ever Preached, Dr. John Newfeld walks us through the topic of giving and secrecy. So let's go back to the Bible as we study our text in Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 to 6. Let's begin by reading Matthew 6, 1 to 6. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. You know, from this passage has come a tradition in which some people have argued that our religion is a private matter. It's between us and God, and we're better off not to talk about it. But of course, Jesus never taught that. Earlier, he taught that we were the light of the world, and a part of light is to declare the praises of God to a darkened world. Indeed, There, Jesus absolutely demanded that our good deeds were to be seen by men so that we may glorify our Father in heaven. And in Matthew 10, 33, Jesus said that if anyone acknowledged him before men, he would acknowledge them before his heavenly Father. No, no. Faith and one's religion is never a private matter. It was not intended to be. But one's religion is filled with traps and snares. In chapter 5 of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus was describing the moral demands required to be his disciple. He discussed everything from our internal condition of how we respond to our enemy. But now he changes the subject matter. He moves from the moral demands of being a disciple to the religious demands. I know that the word religion has become a very negative one. Furthermore, I know that those of us who live in North America— live in a decidedly secular or a non-religious culture. We rarely have public civic prayers. I mean, national sporting events begin with a national anthem and never a public prayer. So it's very difficult for us to envision what Jesus is talking about or the culture in which he lived. But today, we're going to try to understand him and his times. And when we do, we'll also understand how to apply what he is saying to our times. So let's begin with the opening statement. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. That's what Jesus is teaching about. That's the heading. Now, in Jewish first century culture, there were three recognized acts of open and public piety. The first was generosity to the poor. The second was public prayers, and the third was corporate, even national days of fasting. For our purposes, we're going to only look at two of these, giving to the poor and to public prayers. Now, in order to understand the relationship that the average Israelite had to the poor, you have to immerse yourself in the Old Testament. Let's do a brief study. The Old Testament mandated the principle of tithing. To tithe means to give 10% of one's income, and here's how it worked. 
The tithe was inseparably connected to the concept of first fruits. Each year at harvest time, Israel was to bring into the Lord a representation of the harvest that still lay in the field and then to present that before the Lord as an act of worship. And from that followed the idea of the tithe. And the tithe was always the first and not the last of your income. It was a statement of faith and of thanksgiving that the rest of the harvest would still come in. Now, when most of us think of the tithe, we think of 10% and no more. And so for those studying the Old Testament for the first time, it's a surprise to find out that there was not one, but there were in fact three different tithes. The first tithe is presented in Numbers 18, and it was a tithe given to support the priests and the Levites, as well as the administration of the tabernacle, which of course is your place of worship. Translated into our terms, that would be roughly equivalent to supporting your local church. Then Deuteronomy 12 describes a second tithe, which was given to support the sacred festivals of Israel. Now, these would have included Passover and the Feast of Firstfruits and the Feast of Weeks and the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement and the, and the Feast of Booths. And each one of these feasts would have involved people traveling from all over where they lived to Jerusalem and would have incurred considerable cost. But God is a celebrating God, and Israel regularly shut down the nation and paused in order to remember the great deeds of God. Now, finally, Deuteronomy 14 and chapter 26 describes a third tithe, which was to be given to the orphans and the widows and the poor, but this third tithe was only collected once every three years. But this one-third of a tithe might not cover all the needs of the poor, and so a provision was made in which a person could make a voluntary contribution on top of what was already required of the tithe. And this voluntary contribution was not demanded, and that's what Jesus speaks to. Now, you're going to notice that Jesus doesn't say, should you happen to feel moved to make a voluntary contribution, he says, when you give to the needy or when you give to the poor. The idea here is that it was expected that every faithful man or woman who revered the Lord would feel moved to give, and there was no compulsion to do so. After all, the Old Testament is filled with references of God's care and his provision for the poor. And because God was concerned about the poor, so should we be. So, for instance, Psalm 112 gives a character description of the righteous, and verse 9 says, He has distributed freely, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. The phrase distributed freely means his contribution was above and beyond what was required of the tithe. And so gifts to the poor were required of the righteous, right? Well, says Jesus, hold on for a moment. When in verse 2, Jesus speaks of sounding a trumpet before you give. I mean, as far as I know from my research, there was no practice of sounding trumpets before anyone gave. And I, I think what we have here is a bit of what has been called rabbinic exaggeration. That is, overstating something so that we all get the idea. That was a traditional way of teaching. It's like saying, you should take care of the tree that's in your own eye before taking the speck out of someone else's eye. Well, there was no tree in anyone's eye, but you overstate state it to make it appear as ridiculous as possible. And so Jesus is talking about a not-so-subtle form of hypocrisy. Look at it this way. In older Greek, the word hypocrite came from the word actor. When someone acts in a movie or a stage play, they're pretending to be something that they're not. 
And that's really a good analogy. We're pretending that we are acting for the glory of God and for the welfare of others when, in fact, it is an act. It's a hypocrisy. Instead, we're actually fooling others and perhaps even ourselves. We're not doing this for the praise of God. We're doing it for the praise of men. And so, continuing to use this rabbinic form of exaggeration, Jesus talks about not letting your right hand know what your left hand is doing. Now, in truth, whatever one hand does, the other knows as well. We all know that. But I think that Daniel Doriani has given an excellent illustration. He gives an example of a violinist. When the violinist is accomplished, he's not aware of his hands, says Doriani. Instead, he's aware of the music, but not the location of his index finger. And so it is with a man or woman who performs his or her religious duty to the poor. He or she acts with an awareness of the praise of God and is unaware of the praise of man. His right hand is not aware of his left hand. His impulse is the reward of God and not the reward of man. Now, at this point, we might say, if you act to be praised by men, well, once that praise is given, Once people notice you perform your acts of religious devotion and speak well of you, you're now paid in full. There's no further reward coming. God the Father recognizes that you're an actor and that your play is for the praise of men. Now, think of how subtle that is. Yes, when it comes to giving, this is often the case. Wealthy entrepreneurs are often praised for their generous gifts, either to hospitals or to the arts, or even their gifts given to the poor, both at home and overseas. But hear me out. See, I'm a pastor, and over the years, men and women have praised me repeatedly, and at times, I've had to wonder about myself. Is it possible to start one's ministry for the praise of God, and then over the years, become an actor on the stage waiting for the applause of men? But why limit this to entrepreneurs and pastors? Perhaps you've complained that you've volunteered for years, and no one has ever even paused to thank you. Huh. Well, more when we come back. Jesus' words here are relevant to all believers, whether we're in positions of leadership or members of his flock. We all need to guard against the tendency of pride in what could be called showmanship when it comes to how we live out our faith through giving to the needy, prayer, and so on. So how do we keep ourselves in check, avoiding the sin of hypocrisy and seeking the praise of men? Well, Dr. Neufeld teaches us more about this when we come back. As we enter a new year, we want to begin by expressing a sincere thank you to all those who so graciously supported Back to the Bible Canada's year-end ministry campaign. Your gift in December was critical to launching the ministry into the new year, sustaining our Bible teaching resources, and providing a springboard for new and innovative opportunities. So on behalf of Dr. John Newfeld, Phil Calloway, In Doubt, and the entire Back to the Bible Canada ministry team, thank you. What you do is essential to the mission of this organization. As we enter a new year, please continue to pray for this ministry. And if Back to the Bible Canada is an important part of your spiritual walk with Jesus, and you believe in the mission of Bible teaching, please consider continuing your financial support or becoming a monthly partner. Call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. Thank you. 
Some people have difficulty with the open and unashamed appeal that Jesus makes to rewards. What they ask is really the difference between the person who works for the praise of people and the person who works for the praise of God. Shouldn't we give to the poor as an act of charity without asking the question of reward at all? Doesn't the desire for reward destroy the act of selfless giving? And yet, over and over again, Jesus has been promising rewards. He does so on four separate occasions in just six verses. Your father who sees in secret will reward you, he says. Well, what do we make of this kind of motivation in which we are driven to sacrifice and give because we are waiting for our heavenly father to see and to reward? To that, I think I have two answers. The first comes from C.S. Lewis, who makes a distinction between what he calls an extrinsic and an intrinsic reward. An extrinsic reward has no natural connection to the thing done. So, for instance, you've been serving in your church, and on a given Sunday, you're called to the front, you're given a box of chocolates as a thank you. Well, nothing wrong with that. In fact, it's nice but it's an extrinsic reward. The chocolates you enjoy have nothing to do with your volunteer work. But, says Lewis, an intrinsic reward is different. Let's say you're learning to play the piano, and you've been practicing very hard, and it shows. And one day your piano teacher says, I have a reward for you. And on that day, she gives you a card, and on it, you find that you've been given five piano lessons from one of the greatest pianists alive today. That's called an intrinsic reward because the reward is directly related to the thing that is done. See, in the teaching of Jesus, that's how rewards function. Listen to what Jesus says in Luke 16, 10 to 12. One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you with true riches? And if you've not been faithful in that which is another's, who will entrust you with that which is your own? Do you see the nature of intrinsic rewards? Jesus is preparing his followers for a kingdom, one in which they will rule and reign along with him. In that kingdom, they will be given great reward, and they will use that reward to further the majesty and glory of God. If we can't learn to give to the poor for the glory of God now, how will we function for the glory of God then? And so in order to help his subjects prepare for the kingdom, he calls upon them to do some acts of giving in absolute secret. It will be a test of motives. It will help prepare his servants for the great reward to come. Now, before we move to the matter of prayer, I need to say just a little bit on the issue of secrecy and giving. I hope you've seen that Jesus does not mandate that all giving be done in secret. Indeed, he has specified a specific case study, if you will. And I say that because in Acts 2, 34 to 37, we're told of a very generous gift of a man named Joseph. He's a Levite, one of the very first Christians. The exact nature of his gift is described, along with the fact that the entire church knew about it. Furthermore, it would seem that the apostles changed Joseph's name to Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, precisely because this was such a generous gift. Now, I mention this because there are those believers who have not understood Jesus in the context in which he said these things, and so have assumed that, you know, we shouldn't even be given a tax receipt from the government for our giving and so forth. 
I think that's not what Jesus spoke about here. He's speaking about how we need to rediscover our motivation. Are we acting out of a desire for the reward that awaits us in glory, or are we acting for the praise of men, which would indicate that our hope is deeply rooted in this world? And here we see that religion is indeed a strange thing. Religion can become centered on rewards in this life. It can indicate that we have no eternal hope, none whatsoever. It's subtle. And Jesus wants his followers never to fall into the trap of the Pharisees who sold their hope in eternity to the fading hope of this world. Well, let's move to the matter of prayer. And here again, as before, Jesus speaks of secrecy. And again, as before, we need to understand prayer in the context of a culture in which civic and national praying was common and even expected. See, in Jesus' day, each day had set times for prayer. There were public prayers in the morning, in the afternoon, and there were evening prayers as well. And according to Jewish historian Josephus, public prayers were offered at the temple twice each day, in the early morning and at the ninth hour. He also speaks of a third, a sunset service, where prayer was offered again. Now, please understand that the Bible does not condemn public prayers. Both First Kings and Second Chronicles, as an example, recount the public prayer of Solomon as the temple was dedicated. Or Nehemiah 9 recounts one of the great revivals in Israel, which tells of the large gathering of national prayer. See, in the New Testament, the situation is no different. For instance, Acts 4, 24-31, following the arrest of Peter and John, the entire church gathered for public prayer, and we have the report in our Bible as to exactly what was prayed for in public. Now, Jesus is not denying this important part of corporate life of the people of God. Public prayers are a part of our life. Then what was he condemning? Well, the answer must be that he's condemning the hypocrites who, when the nation of Israel went to prayer three times each day, made sure they were standing either in the center of their synagogue or at the street corner where they could be easily observed by others. How they appeared to others was at issue, not the heart cry before God. And so what is a follower of Jesus to do? And of course, Jesus helps us out. If you want to know if you're merely an actor or an imposter at prayer, you'll need to find places and times in your life when your heart at prayer where no one but no one sees you but God alone. And if you're finding that you've been playing the hypocrite, and you're standing in the public places when the call to national prayer goes out, well, you're going to have to change your habits. You'll need to make sure that when those three times a day for a prayer are called, you're in a place where no one sees you, no one at all. And with that, let's return to Jesus' first sentence in this section. Beware, he says, of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. Notice he says, beware. This kind of thing happens with remarkable ease. Without noticing it, you can become an actor and not a worshiper. And that's a danger for every single child of God. Beware. If this isn't a danger, Jesus would not have warned us. How quickly is religion turned from being the heart's cry of devotion to our God to being a vehicle where we use religion to increase our status? Let me end by telling you the story of Henry Nouwen. Henry Nouwen was a Roman Catholic priest who was also a very successful academic. Henry Nouwen taught at Harvard Divinity School. 
He also taught at Yale Divinity School and also at the University of Notre Dame. All three of those schools are schools of distinction where only the elite faculty will ever teach. He had every form of religious success, but he remembers asking himself a question when he reached his 50s. He said, am I now walking closer to Jesus than I ever have before? And he concluded that it was not so. In fact, he concluded that his soul was in great danger. And those of you who know the story know that he left his academic setting and gave the rest of his life to an obscure community dedicated to serving people with special needs who would never be able to reward him in the way that he had been rewarded in the past. Every one of us must hear the words of Jesus. Beware. You must do what needs to be done so that your soul is not in jeopardy. Your religion can become a matter of show only for the applause of people, and you will forget the God who saved you. Beware, says Jesus, do not do your religious observance before men. John, I'm reminded during this message of so many examples, historic examples, like Brother Lawrence, for instance, who did everything because they wanted to glorify God and nothing else. But in certain situations, we have to ask ourselves, what is our motivation? What is our motivation for doing the things we're doing? Is it the praise of others? Yeah, it, it comes a point in time in every believer's life where we need to look hard at ourselves and say, have I just become a performer for the good of others? Maybe I'm speaking to myself here, Ben, because so much of my life has now been a public life. And I've come to realize that God wants me to develop a private inner life as well, in which there are things that I do that no one will see but God alone. Um, I think that's what I would say to everyone. I don't know whether you're a, a Sunday school teacher or, you know, you, you do something in which people notice what you do because they're going to. Uh, every one of us needs to ask ourselves, to what extent has the praise of others simply overwhelmed that inner impulse that I first had? And I think it happens to everyone. That's why Jesus warns us so strongly about it. And that's why the examples like you did of Brother Lawrence, and I use the example of Henry Nowen and others, I think they speak to us and ask us to reconsider. I hope that today's message has spoken to you in a meaningful way as we become people who seek the praise of God and not of men. Join us tomorrow as we wrap up week three of this series on the Sermon on the Mount with Dr. John Newfeld discussing part one of the Disciples' Prayer. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. Seeing the crowds, he, Jesus, went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. Jesus then opened his mouth as he taught them the greatest sermon ever preached, known to you and me as the Sermon on the Mount. 2,000 years later, people are still reflecting, discussing, even challenging each other about its meaning and relevance. For the next five weeks, Dr. Neufeld walks us through the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 to 7, revealing the heart of what it means to be a true follower of Christ and the implications upon how we ought to live. Join us on this station every weekday, or if you miss an episode, you can catch up online at backtothebible.ca. 
For more information or to support this Bible teaching ministry, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.